At the very turn of the 19th century, a young woman's body was found at the bottom of a New York City well. Elma Sands had been murdered, and a young man stood on trial for his life. His defense team? None other than Brockholst Livingston, Alexander Hamilton, and Aaron Burr. Find out what happened in the murder trial of the new century, known as the Week's Murder Trial, this week on Footnoting History. Hello, Footnoting History friends, it's Kristen here, back with another murder mystery for you. That's kind of been my thing lately. For some reason, these murder mysteries keep finding me. I don't know why, and I'm not going to pull on that thread. All I know is you're going to love this one, especially if you like the true crime genre, which arguably this case was the advent of in the United States, because the Weeks murder trial has been described by historians as the first fully documented murder case in the history of the new United States. Remember, if you'd like a captioned version of this episode, if you're wondering how names and places are spelled, or if it helps you retain information by seeing the words on the screen, and honestly, that helps me sometimes, remember that you can find a captioned version on our YouTube channel or on our website, footnotinghistory.com. And if you'd like to read more about Elma Sands, Levi Weeks, and his dynamic defense trio of prominent early Americans, or even a picture of the infamous Manhattan Well. You can find it on our website under the further reading for this episode. I have a feeling you're going to want to hear more than I can tell you in the short time that we're together. I do also want to pause to mention that this case contains discussion of violence, sexual abuse, and self-harm. Please be aware and do what's best for you. And so, let's begin. Horrid murder by the hands of a lover, wrote the Independent Gazetteer on January 26, 1800. She was, that evening, to be privately married, Claypool's American Daily Advertiser had written some weeks before, which was really remarkable, considering that even to this day, no one knows for sure what happened to Elma Sands the night of December 22, 1799. I mean, they definitely had their ideas. I know I have mine. I don't really have a hat in the ring. I just have opinions. And if you know me, you know I have a lot of them. But some people at the time claimed to know the truth, to deflect suspicion from themselves. Most were just caught up in the drama. Many did it to sell newspapers, which they did. The murder gripped the city of New York, and it was all anyone could talk about. Suffice it to say that there was wild speculation about the unfortunate Guillermo Sands, who mostly went by Elma, sometimes as Elmore. But here's what we do know. The undisputed facts of the case that would become known as the Weeks murder trial or the Manhattan Well mystery. On the night of December 22nd, 1799, a little after eight o'clock, Elma Sands left her cousin's boarding house at 208 Greenwich Street in Manhattan, never to return. Alive. She was missing for 11 days until on January 2nd, 1800, when a group of men, one of whom was Elma's relative, investigated an abandoned well in Lispinard's Meadow. Lispinard's Meadow was an area of rural Manhattan, today located in the Soho neighborhood, which is hardly the countryside now, but it was then. 
A piece of clothing thought to be worn by Elma on the night she was last seen had been found at the well by a boy whose family lived in the general area. And so the group of men went to drag the bottom of the well with poles and a net. And they found Elma. She was not in good shape. The coroner's inquest would determine that the cause of death was drowning, but she did have several bruises and scratches. A suspect was immediately named Levi Weeks, who was the brother of a prominent carpenter and builder in New York named Ezra Weeks. Levi was a boarder at Elma's cousin's boarding house, and he was taken straight to the Manhattan well and made to identify the body. And from there, he was taken to the infamous Bridewell prison. It's since been rebuilt and renamed a few times, but the site is still the location of the Manhattan Detention Complex at 125 Water Street in Lower Manhattan. From here, the facts of the case cease being undisputed. A lot of people were convinced it was Levi, but they were also speculating about Elma, too. There was talk of Elma being a little too fond of opiates, that she was sneaking around in the middle of the night with the young Levi Weeks, that they were engaged, that she was pregnant, that she was gallivanting around town in a sleigh without bells on the night of December 22nd. Elma was known for being sick a lot of the time, but her relatives wouldn't say she abused any drugs. The coroner's inquest found that Elma was not pregnant, and Levi denied a romantic relationship. No one could ever really say who was in the sleigh, for sure. But there are some things that we can learn about Elma based on the source material. So she was young. Tragically young. Elma Sands was the cousin of Catherine Ring, who ran the boarding house with her husband Elias. Hope Sands was Catherine Ring's sister, and along with the Ring's four children, she also lived at the boarding house. The Sands were originally from Cornwall, New York, which is about 60 miles up the Hudson River. The three women, Catherine, Hope, and Elma, were pretty close in age in their early to mid-twenties, and at the trial, Catherine said that she considered Elma like a sister, that Elma was, quote, very lively, open, and free. Elma is often described as jaunting off to fun events, sometimes at night, and Catherine doesn't ever seem to tell her no. Elma was 22 at the time of her death, and she had been with the Rings in New York for about three years. For all the press coverage of the week's murder trial, and there is a lot, there were tons of pamphlets and, and news stories and publications by people who attended the trial, and for years after, the story would be raised and people continued to talk about it until, well, until today, really. But for all the coverage of the murder, the descriptions of what Elma looked like are sort of general and vague. Until 70 years later. In 1870, a book called Guilty or Not Guilty, The True Story of the Manhattan Well, came out. And the author was the granddaughter of Catherine Ring. In the book, Keturah Kana describes Elma's having, quote, dark midnight eyes that were, quote, soft and sad, and, quote, glossy curls that, quote, fell around the young face like a sable curtain. She describes Elma as being teased by her classmates who called her, quote, 
the little mountain maid in reference, I guess, to her frontier upstate New York background, but also that Elma was smart and a quick study, that she was delicate and often unable to perform household work, but that she did like listening to the piano. Ketura did not actually know Elma, and it is a very romantic, flattering picture, so take all that for what you will. Catherine Ring seems to have been deceased by the time the book came out, but Hope Sands was still alive in 1870, so this information may have come from her, even if it also maybe was colored with bittersweet hindsight. Ketura Kana also describes Levi in her book. She says that he was, quote, tall and well-formed. People thought he was pretty good-looking, with long, dark eyelashes and blue eyes, and that he wore his long hair in a queue, which is a type of 18th-century ponytail. Levi was still starting out in the business world in 1799. He was about 24 years old. He mostly worked for his older brother, but he did keep pretty busy. On the night of December 22nd, the defense presented that he was making eight doors at his brother's workshop. In the lead-up to the trial, there was a lot of press about how this seemingly nice guy was shockingly actually a monster who murdered his fiance, which speaks to how he generally presented before the murder. People liked him, and no one had a bad thing to say about him before. At the trial, Mrs. Ring called Levi's moral character, quote, very good, and that she always thought that he had a, quote, kind disposition, right up until she thought he murdered her cousin, I guess. And despite the later accusations, Mrs. Ring never said she heard Levi or Elma say they were engaged or that they went out together. Other people disagreed that they didn't notice anything romantic going on between Elma and Levi. Hope Sands and Elias Ring for two. But regardless, there was significant effort in the press, by the prosecution and by Elma's family, to portray Elma as a virtuous victim. The unsuspecting, innocent maiden who was lured to her death in an abandoned well. Maybe she had a lapse in judgment, and maybe she had something romantic going on with Levi, but she thought they were going to get married. That was their position. The defense's strategy was to sow doubt about Elma's character and what really happened that night. There was testimony about Elma saying things like, she wished she never had an existence, and that if she had laudanum, quote, she would swallow it. Laudanum was a substance made with opium that people often took for pain and got addicted to. Elma, who did often suffer from bouts of illness, did have laudanum. Catherine Ring dismissed the idea that Elma would intentionally overdose, but one witness the defense called another boarder at the Ring's house claimed that Elma seemed melancholy to him. Another witness testified that Mr. Ring initially believed Elma had drowned, and that he hired someone to sweep the river near their house to find her body. This witness didn't believe that Mr. Ring thought Elma had been murdered. Rather, the implication here was that Mr. Ring believed that she had thrown herself into the river. The prosecution, the defense, the judge, and the clerk of the court who ultimately provided the most complete transcript of the trial, making it the most fully documented murder trial in the new United States. Here we go, you guys. There's some big names in the early history of the United States. I'll start with the judge who presided over the court of Oyer and Terminer at Federal City Hall, John Lansing Jr. 
He was the Chief Justice of the New York Supreme Court. He attended the Continental Congress in Philadelphia in 1787 and eventually retired from the judiciary to become a regent at the University of the State of New York. Judge Lansing actually has his own murder mystery attached to him. One day in December of 1829, he went out to mail a letter and was never heard from again. So that was the judge. Let's talk about the clerk. People were scrambling to publish about this trial. Within mere hours, there were things out there claiming to give a true and accurate account of what happened at the trial. But these first grabs were far from accurate, even if they did sell pretty well. One publication admitted it was crap, basically saying, what do you want from us? We were all really tired. We did this really fast. And also, we don't care if our readers like the style or not. The part about them all being really tired is actually pretty accurate. The first day of the trial went to 1.30 in the morning. Trials didn't usually go this long. And spoiler, it would go into another long night. And no one was quite sure what to do with the jury. So they made them all sleep upstairs in Federal Hall in the portrait gallery. The most complete and accurate account of the trial came out a few weeks later because the clerk of the court who wrote it, William Coleman, did actually care if he got it right. It was called, get ready for this, quote, a report of the trial of Levi Weeks on an indictment for the murder of Guglielma Sands on Monday, the 31st day of March and Tuesday, the 1st day of April, 1800, taken in shorthand by a clerk of the court. Coleman claimed that he filled six notebooks in shorthand during the trial. And with a title like that, no wonder it took him until April 14th to get it out there. That sucker ended up being 99 pages, and it was the longest trial account published to that date. It's not always the clearest, though. Coleman doesn't always say who from the defense team is actually talking, so Historians have to guess based on known styles and records from other trials they did solo. Eventually, after the trial, Coleman became the editor of a Federalist newspaper, the New York Evening Post. You may have heard of it. The prosecutor representing the people in The People versus Levi Weeks was the assistant attorney general, Cadwalder David Colden. He was the grandson of a famous botanist and lieutenant governor of the colony of New York. His Aunt Jane was also a famous botanist. And as for assistant A.G. Colden, he would go on to become mayor of New York and get himself elected to Congress. The defense team was three people. First up, Brockholst Livingston. He was the son of William Livingston, who was a signer of the Constitution and the first governor of New Jersey. Oh yeah, and William Livingston administered the oath of office to George Washington. Big shoes to fill, but he did okay. Brockholz Livingston served as the private secretary to John Jay, who was the first chief justice of the United States Supreme Court. Brockholz became a New York Supreme Court justice in 1802 and in 1806, Thomas Jefferson appointed him to the United States Supreme Court, so not too shabby. And then there were the other two members of the defense team, guys. The other two lawyers representing Levi Weeks were Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton. I just cannot. 
history, you are too good to me because this I just find amazing. Maybe because I don't often do work on early American history, but when I think of Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton, I think about their 1804 duel. Admittedly, mostly because of a Got Milk commercial I saw forever ago that really made an impression on me, apparently. If you know, you know. The quick recap is that Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton were important figures during the Revolutionary War and the founding era. And Burr was Colonel Burr, and Hamilton was General Hamilton. Both men were important members of New York society and the political scene and marched in the parade given in honor of George Washington on the occasion of his death in December of 1799 in Manhattan. Before everyone was talking about the Elm Sands murder, they were talking about George Washington. Burr and Hamilton were bitter political opponents. Burr was a Democratic Republican and Hamilton was a Federalist. They had very different ideas about the role of government and voting rights. They went after each other in the press pretty hard, and at one point, Burr felt it was more personal than politics. But in addition to their more well-known political careers, Burr and Hamilton were both lawyers. And in the 1790s and early 1800s, that was a pioneering field in the United States. Both of these guys had law offices in Lower Manhattan, and they were pretty busy, mostly doing property stuff in the wake of the revolution. Aaron Burr's philosophy on the law was that it was, quote, whatever is boldly asserted and plausibly maintained. A slow clap for Aaron Burr. He served as New York Attorney General from 1789 to 1791, so he definitely was familiar with Cadwalder Colden's job, and he did pretty well in his private law practice. Hamilton also kept pretty busy and had a lot of legal clients. But by the time he was hired to do the Levi Weeks trial, he'd only defended one murder case. He mostly did commercial litigation. These guys both had to work. They were part of the new American elite and its upper founding classes, but Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton were pretty broke in the 1790s. They both were having trouble maintaining their lavish lifestyles and paying their creditors. Aaron Burr owned a mansion estate called Richmond Hill that stood at what is today Varick and Charlton Streets, kind of close to where the Holland Tunnel is now. That house is no longer there, but Alexander Hamilton's estate called The Grange does still exist. It's part of the National Park Service up in West Harlem. A few months before the week's trial, Burr tried to rent out Richmond Hill because the upkeep was getting a bit too much for him. No one took it at the time, but eventually John Jacob Astor bought it. The Grange did a little better, even if Hamilton himself did not. After he was killed by Burr in the 1804 duel, his widow Elizabeth continued to live there for 30 years. But in early 1800, Alexander Hamilton owed a lot of money to one Ezra Weeks, who had built the Grange and who Alexander Hamilton had not yet paid. He maybe never did. He didn't write down a bill for Ezra for defending his brother Levi, maybe to settle his Grange debt, or maybe because Alexander Hamilton was apparently not good about writing down his legal bills, just like in general. But even if he were one of the upper classes in early 19th century New York, 
you could still end up in debtor's prison if your creditors called in their bills. So best to get all the paying work you could or don't bill the people you owe money to. Either way. Ezra Weeks was also connected to Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr was a founding board member of the Manhattan Company, which was formed, ostensibly, in 1798 for the purpose of piping fresh water into Manhattan, thereby making people's lives a lot easier and a lot healthier. The Manhattan Company hired Ezra Weeks to help lay the pipes that would bring fresh water to a series of wells and then eventually into some people's basements. One of these wells was the Manhattan Well. It ended up being abandoned and boarded up because it was too sandy, but originally it was part of the Manhattan Company plan. And if you're thinking it's weird that Ezra Weeks was laying water pipes because he was a carpenter, yeah, I'm right there with you. I think it's weird to use wood too. I mean, it's better than lead, but the alternative they were considering at the time was iron. However, the Manhattan Company thought that metal pipes were too expensive, and they argued that wooden pipes would last at least 20 years, so they were just going to do that. Okay, so here's the thing. When Aaron Burr was trying to get approval for his privately run Manhattan Company to better the living situation of New Yorkers, Alexander Hamilton was on board. It was supposed to be an even Democratic, Republican, and Federalist-run company. People were good with the bill as proposed, and so a lot of them left Albany before it was actually passed. After they left, Burr changed some stuff. He enlarged the board so that it was mostly Democratic Republicans, and only 10% of the stock would be owned by the city. He also snuck in a clause about how the Manhattan Company could use any surplus funds however they wanted to. So they actually had a strong interest in doing things on the cheap. Because what they did with those surplus funds was create the Manhattan Bank, known today as the Chase Manhattan Bank. This was a big deal because up until that, the Federalists and Alexander Hamilton controlled the only other bank in town, the Bank of New York, known today as the Bank of New York. Before, if you wanted a loan, you better be a Federalist. But there was an important election coming up, and the existence of the Manhattan Bank gave the Democratic Republicans a leg up. And while it didn't necessarily look good that the most sensational murder trial centered around a Manhattan company well, the publicity was great for both Burr and Hamilton. They were front and center, and they both did a great job at proving their client's innocence. They threw enough doubt at the jury and emphasized that the prosecution's timeline for the murder was impossible. They established a very plausible alibi for Levi. Granted, the alibi was verified by Ezra Weeks and John McComb, who was the contractor for Hamilton's house, The Grange, but it worked. In a matter of minutes, the jury returned on April 2nd, close to three in the morning, with a verdict of not guilty. There were a lot of people who never stopped believing that Levi Weeks had gotten away with murder, but only a few months after the trial, there was something else that happened to deepen the mystery of the Manhattan Will murder. I actually don't consider it to be that much of a mystery, but you can decide for yourself. One of the things that the defense team did was cast suspicion on a guy named Richard Croucher, who was another boarder at the Rings house. He was a fabric salesman from London who reads as pretty shady right from the get-go. He was one of the earliest and loudest voices accusing Levi of the murder, when before, no one had a bad word to say about him. 
Croucher was all over the place telling people Levi did it, and he was suspected of handing out pamphlets about ghosts and goblins at the Manhattan Well. Croucher did have an alibi. He was at a party at the house of Anne Ashmore, who ran a brandy distillery out of her house. But when called to testify, none of the party attendees could agree on what day that party even was. What's more than that, in July of 1800, just a few months after the week's trial, Richard Croucher was tried and convicted for raping 13-year-old Margaret Miller, who was the servant of his new wife. Croucher was horribly abusive, and it was Croucher's new wife who reported him to the authorities. This guy was gross. It came out at the trial that Margaret was well aware of the recent, meaning the Manhattan Well murder, and that Croucher had threatened to kill her if she told anyone what happened. The jury came back in four minutes. Guilty. And you know, good. He got life in state prison. Initially. The governor pardoned him a few years later. Years before in England, where he was also known as Richard Crutcher, he'd also been in trouble with the law. He stole stuff, was known for erratic, violent behavior, and he'd had a wife and children who got a protective order from a court because he was so abusive. People called him Mad Croucher, and he avoided a conviction for theft on that basis. In New York, Croucher's lawyer argued for a pardon also on that basis. He did get it, but he was supposed to leave the country. He did not. He went to Virginia, where bounty hunters eventually tracked him down, and he was convicted for fraud. One of Alexander Hamilton's sons wrote that Croucher was sent back to England, where he was executed for, quote, a heinous crime. I don't know what that crime was, but I do know that it sounds to me like Richard Croucher killed Elma Sands. Elma Sands was buried near to where the Quaker Meeting House once stood, on Liberty Street and Liberty Place in Lower Manhattan. The boarding house at 208 Greenwich Street was torn down in the mid-19th century, but there is a sketch of it in the 1861 book Manuals of the Corporation of the City of New York. As for the Manhattan Well, it actually still exists. You can find it at 129 Spring Street, the meadow is long gone, and the building where the well sits has been a lot of things over the years. It was a flower shop, a pawnbroker, a tobacco depot, a German beer hall. Today, it's a Coast clothing store, which is a division of H&M. It's just down there in the basement, part of New York's strange, grim, and fascinating history. Just right there underfoot. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast and want to learn more about this episode, please visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, or reach out to us on social media. And if you like the work we do here and want to help keep Footnoting History open access, consider supporting us through our Patreon, Ko-Fi, or shop links. We'd love to keep bringing you exciting historical content, written and produced by professionally trained historians. And remember, the best stories are in the footnotes.